Welcome to the very first podcast uh, in the new year in 2024. Happy New Year from us in Liverpool Adventures. Uh, with me today, I've got two Davids, two fabulous Davids, two tough ones. Um, Happy New Year first to you, David Fairclough. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Um, feeling the effects of a little cold. So as I say, uh, at times maybe clarity might be an issue, hopefully get over it but uh, it's only a bit of a cold and there's a lot of it about at the moment isn't there and you are at the end of a house move and uh, you've been living for decades in this uh, huge house in Formby next to you know close to Klopp and Gerard mm-hmm. and Neely and and the boys how is it to try to sort of empty the house have you found a lot of memories from your it's, Liverpool time oh, Plenty of memories, plenty of, uh, you know, you're, you're sort of inclined to ignore a bag and you go and have a look in and find a couple of pairs of old boots, my old shin pads, uh, which uh, a pal was around. He said, uh, he said, when do you think? I said, well, probably I wore them right through, you know, a lot of my career. He said, God, you couldn't believe it. He thought it was a... Anyway, they turned into a... They've been, they've been utilised in another... In another fashion, supporting a chair at the moment, these uh, <laughs> these shin pads. So who knows? Maybe uh, might be a little bit of a uh, a memento I can pass on somewhere down the line. You should but, put it uh, in the Liverpool bags Museum. Bags and bags of all kinds of different things. Well, that's another story. I think the shin pads should definitely come to the museum, or we can frame them here in Hotel Tia if you like. <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah, a bit. Uh, I was surprised to come across. Well, you are, aren't you? When you when you you clear out a house, you don't realise some of the things that have just been, as I say, thrown into a bag and and then just been sort of like uh, you know things go on top of things, and before you know where you are, mm-hmm. you don't see these things for. You know, for many, many years. So a couple of pairs of old boots there as well. So, uh, you know, you know that, that was interesting as well. You could auction them for, for the Walton charity. Uh, even, yeah. yeah, it might have to be a Fairclough charity as well, the way <laughs> <Yeah>. I'm going on. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to. Did you get really sentimental about all the Liverpool stuff you found? Well, you do. And, and we, we had a little chat just before we went on air about um, pictures and things. But, uh, you know found you know so many uh, uh different things moments of uh uh you know of exploits of interviews of games and, and things like that and it does get you know just sort of like make you a little bit melancholy thinking where's all the years gone um uh nice to have been able to do it but um i don't feel as though i'm anywhere capable of doing some of these things and that, that's kind of the sad bit i'm limping around like uh, like an old man and yet uh, once upon a time i was running around like a bit of a spring uh, you know a spring lamb you were more than a spring lamb you were the super striker who scored those vital goals that you know without you we would probably have won our first european cup so there you go this 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 spring lamb can more than sprint uh, that's for sure and with us we also have another david david smallwood welcome to the show how are you I'm good, and thank you for the uh, very kind invitation. So we can actually brag that now, David, we've had a proper bodyguard on the show. How cool is that? Well, there you go. Well, you are uh, getting more popular all the time, Ragnall. So, oh, it's not know, me. It's no, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> it's you, David. <laughs> but David, um, we met actually at Anfield mm-hmm. over a table. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love the most about being a Liverpool fan is how 
I meet so many mm -hmm. fun and interesting and wonderful people. And I have been so privileged and lucky to do that, do that over so many years as a fan. Uh, and, and one of the recent meetings was you. And we started talking and you just blew me and my husband completely away with what you're doing and, and your life path. Um, you go into some of the most dangerous areas in the world. Tell us a little bit about the job you do. Um, we, we tend not to use the word bodyguards. I mean, we, we tend to say close protection officer now, yeah. um, more than anything else. Um, my role, I've got several sorts of roles within that security arena. Um, one of them is I specialise in kidnap ransom prevention um, in hostile countries such as Afghanistan, uh, Haiti. Um, I'm also a security advisor for um, several large humanitarian organisations. Um, what we often, it's easy to forget that before humanitarian organisations go into these um, troubled countries, they, for the duty of care for their own staff, they would normally have to send someone in to do a security assessment. Uh, and then at the end of that, it will be decided, should they, you know, or would they be allowed? Is it safe enough to to bring aid into them countries. Um, and also, as one of my roles as a close protection of sometimes I do some media work. Um, I was lucky enough to do the uh, the West Ham game in Prague with Sky. So the role does have quite <laughs> wow. a few different elements. Yeah. yeah. But you've been into some pretty scary situations. Mm. Um, what is it like to go into countries in war and... and try to do the job the best you can, but at the same time, think about your own uh, safety, basically. I think you do get used to it. Uh, I know we were talking to David before um, we come on uh, on air. Um, you, you, you tend to work out what you can safely block out in very, very stressful situations. Um, um, for me, I'm, a, I'm an ex-recon uh, ranger from the uh, from the military, so I spent 23 years in the military. That was a really good platform for training on how to deal with stressful situations, how to stay focused and only concentrate on information that uh, you can process. Um, you can imagine if you went into these environments and you only look at negatives, how that would affect your, your whole thought process. Um, so, you know, the, the training that I have had over the years, or the experience actually I've had over the years, um, even more so now with Ukraine and lots of other countries, including I've just come back from Israel. Um, you know, it's, it's all worked. Uh, I use that to the advantage to assess the situation. Uh, and, you know, you may see it as calmness, but um, you, you, your process will constantly think about what is the worst case scenario, what is the base, the best case scenario, and you'll come up with a solution that hopefully works. But do you, do you get scared? in those situations or are you always as calm as you seem? No, you should get scared. I think um, if you are in a, a, a situation where you don't get scared, I mean, look at the definition of scared. You could say, or you can say and worried. It's the same same word. Yeah. If you didn't have that respect to the um, the environment that you're working in, then it would become quite detrimental to, to the situation and your assessment. Um, so I wouldn't say scared, but I, I obviously have the a, a right amount of, of of concern and respect for the for the danger in them environments. What kind of countries have you worked in over the years? Um, wow, um, I could 
uh, sum up la- even last year alone, uh, Afghanistan, um, Ukraine several times, Haiti, um, Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Cambodia, um, Israel. Um, I mean, the list just goes on. Um, I, I think I was in 17 different countries last year. Ooh, how many mm. days are you away? The last year, I think probably I was away for about nine months of the year, nine and a half months. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so, but I get used to it. I mean, the world is, I think we'd all agree, um, the world is is going through a very, very troubled phase at the moment. And if it wasn't for the for the joys of football, it'd probably be harder to deal with. That's, that's actually it. Because how many places do you find Liverpool fans? Everywhere. Everywhere. Mean, you, you know, uh, we often think that, um, coming from from Liverpool, uh, you kind of think that this Liverpool support or the passion is just contained within, you know, the, the, the limits of Liverpool. But it's it's not. This passion goes to every single country um, I've, I've been to. And not just to the capitals. I've found myself in some of the remote places and villages in Africa where I was dropped off, you know, by helicopter because there's no road access and one of the first things you do is is you meet very passionate i'll say football i mean liverpool supporters obviously but you still have that that rivalry even in the bush between (laughs) man united and chelsea and arsenal Mm -hmm. and i I think we we don't realize how passionate our overseas supporters are about this game can you try to um, tell, us, tell us a story about some bizarre sort of moments in Liverpool Football Club's history when you are abroad, where, where you know, those two worlds collide? Uh, I think um, it coincides with probably one of the best games of football we've ever seen, which was the, uh, the Barcelona game when we were, we were on the wrong end of a 3-0 uh, half-time result, uh, with the second game being at Anfield. I... I was actually in probably one of the most remote remote places I've ever been, uh, which is a place called Torot in South Sudan. And it, I was dropped in by helicopter. It's There's no electricity, there's no uh, road access. Um, and in an environment where people very live the, the, the traditional way off the field. So, you know, you've got mud huts. Um, and although there was a harshness about the place, there was also a, 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 an element of beauty because that night when we were playing Barcelona, I I was living under a mosquito net, um, but beautiful starry night. I mean, you know, really beautiful, amazing amount of stars. Um, and in the in the distance, I could hear these choirs singing and the drums going um, of of all these songs. But I'd actually, uh, a couple of hours before, I got into an odd conversation with a lot of the people, the, the locals, and they were talking about the Liverpool game. And now you wouldn't connect the passion with these people. I mean, literally, you know, the amount of passion. And, and I, was, I was surprised. I mean, they knew so much about this game. But what, where I was more surprised is the passion and how they were looking forward to that game. But what is odd is we, we are really... We, we rely on, we take for granted our, our connection with watching football. You know, if you haven't got it on TV, you can get it on a live stream on your radio or you can, you can watch the live stream on, a, on, 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 a, on your mobile phone. But when you're in the middle of nowhere and you've got no electricity, you, can't, you haven't got that, that, that luxury. So, 
you know, I, I would like to say I, I knew we were going to win. I didn't think we were going to win 4 0 that night. My brother will argue and say he did, but I, I really didn't. Um, but there was a little bit of hope. Um, so the only connection I had, um, I often in remote places use a satellite phone. Uh, and a satellite phone is, you know, you pull your big antenna out, it's like an old 1980s phone. Um, so you pull a big antenna out, but it, it it connects directly to the satellite. It takes a couple of minutes to connect up. Um, so I remember, um, and, and it's not a, a smartphone, by the way. You, you can connect, but you'll get a message off someone, and it's like a normal standard text message. So I text a friend, uh, can you let me know the Liverpool score? And then I, I had no communication. But I was relaying this to the people. I mean, it's in this beautiful, you know, but very hostile environment. Um, and and all of a sudden, uh, I got a I got a, a little beeping sound off my satellite phone, and we were winning one nil. So I passed that around, and it was a great bit of you know excitement. But then I had a completely break of communications for I think it was about an hour, probably one of the longest hours, uh, or, or, you know, to try and wait for the result. And that's why I say here, you know, you go on your phone, you get a result straight away. A whole hour where you can imagine the four process, are we winning one nil? Did we get beef two one? But then I got this text message coming through saying we won four nil. But it was just we won four nil. And I didn't know if it was a wind up or and I didn't know if to pass this information around, but I thought may as well. And it was this great buzz. And now it's about one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. But no one would go to sleep because, you know, the time difference. So I was trying to get through to my friend and eventually I got through and I went did we win, honestly? And uh, when he said, yeah, we did 4-0, I was in this position, really nice position, to, to, to let everyone know. And you've seen the passion, and we, we, this is in the most remote place, and you would never feel like the same passion that you get outside Anfield or inside Anfield. You would honestly not think that this would, you would get this anywhere else, but you, you really, really do. It's mind-blowing, David, isn't yeah. it? Well, it is, as Dave said earlier on, uh, I mean... I can only liken it, well, I liken it a bit to when we played and uh, you think you're playing in front of 50,000 people at Anfield and that's where the, that's where it starts and ends. You don't realise that people are picking up and it's only later years that you, you pick up that, that people said, oh, I should listen to this on the World Service and blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Uh, but while you're uh, involved, you, you're oblivious. You thought, you know, the world started and ended sort of at the walls of, mm -hmm. of Liverpool, you know. Um, so it's, it's amazing. Um, I mean, we, we see it on a regular basis, uh, being invited by the club to, to meet supporters before the games and, uh, uh, you know, to share some, some conversation. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a couple of people from Nepal, which was, uh, you know, a first for me. Uh, never get su never surprised now from actually where people are coming from. But it was their ambition to come to Anfield and uh, and and to experience, you know, what Anfield was all about. That was for the Arsenal game. But uh, you know, it's every corner of the earth these days mm -hmm. is, is touched by the Liverpool uh, family. Yeah. David, you're so, so dependent on breaking the ice in these hostile environments mm. and you're depending on information and someone you can trust. Mm -hmm. Have your Liverpool heart been um, an important tool for you sometimes in these kind of mapping out situations where you need, you need your network? Yeah, I, um, I, I think I mentioned at the beginning one of the things I specialise in is uh, 
kidnapping ransom prevention. Uh, as part of that training, oddly enough, we talk about communication if you end up, unfortunately, in a situation like that. Um, and you talk about things that you should encourage, uh, subjects that you should encourage to talk about, and things that you shouldn't. Obviously, politics and religion is off the table. But the number one subject to, to, to sort of bridge this communication is football. Mm -hmm. and, and it highlights what I'm saying. Everyone, most people, I would say, have some sort of opinion or, or you know, support uh, to, to a, or allegiance to a, a football team. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's an odd thing because if you meet someone who supports Liverpool and it's, if you meet them for the first time in a completely different culture, uh, in a completely different, you know, uh, quite a hostile environment, you actually think there's a bond just because you say, what team do you support? Liverpool. You kind of feel this bond because you say, I do also. Mm. Uh, and, and I would often, you know, show them photographs of players I've been lucky enough to, to talk to. Uh, and I, or I'll share stories about, you know, Super Dave when he came on and scored <laughs> goals. Uh, and you, you kind of love this, the way you, 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 you can get this bond just because you support a football mm. team. Mm. It's amazing. Mm. Uh, and you were a Liverpool fan since mm. you were little, because you grew up in Kirby at the same, same area as Phil Thompson. For yeah. for those who don't know where Kirby is, it's uh, it's where the, the the new training ground is, by the way, um, and where all the all the kids now uh, in the academy, academy has been for, for years. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you become a Red. Um, well, my family uh, are all Red, so that was very very easy um my dad was and still is a a, a very sort of passionate um red um one of the um the great stories i love about uh, kirby kirby's about seven miles away from the uh, from anfield and uh, down the east langs road um and my father was uh, a lorry driver and he drove um a seven and a half ton open back truck um and what we used to do is on match day, um, and this is hard to like, if you try and relate this to the modern world, it would never be allowed to happen. But on match, match day, I used to go out and I used to tie two scarves, one to each wing mirror. Uh, <laughs> and then we'd set off from Kirby. And the first set of lights, uh, traffic lights where you got stopped, all of a sudden 10 people would jump on the truck at the back. <laughs> but it's about 15 sets of lights before you get to Anfield. And, <gasps> I guarantee every single time, by the time we got to Anfield and we'd park up the, this, this truck, it was a lot easier to park them days, um, we'd have probably 70 people all crowded. <laughs> I mean, the, it was an open back truck with the panels around the side, or the sides were only maybe, you know, three foot high. So everyone had to stand, and you can imagine how, how dangerous that was stopping and starting. But it was the same on the way back, um, you know, after the game. My father, myself, and, and some of his friends, we'd walk back to the vehicle, and we'd suddenly look, and the back of the vehicle would be full of people, <laughs> all waiting for the reverse trip. And every time we stopped at lights, they would jump off, and by the time I got home, it was just me, my father, and possibly, uh, you know, one of his friends. And that was one of my first memories of going to the game, um, and, and amazing memories. El the LFC truck from Kirby, here it comes. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And, and it's, you know, you can imagine trying to put that on today's health and safety. Uh, you know, driving past a police car with 70 people standing yeah. up in an open back truck. Yeah, you wouldn't get very far at all. No. And you were put in the boys' pen. Tell us about that. That was, um, I mean, for those people who don't know the boys' pen, um, it was a small area in the cop. 
um, which I think was a lot cheaper to, to mm. for the, to yeah. pay in. Um, and it was a shilling, was it? Uh, <laughs> and what would happen is, you know, the, uh, the fathers would often take the sons to the game. Um, it would normally involve uh, a couple of drinks, and then I would be, um, I would go and find my way into the boys' pen, and inside the boys' pen, I can't remember. There's a couple of hundred boys inside there, uh, and it was basically just an area inside the cop in the corner that had like prison bars. I mean, literally, there's no other way of putting it. You know, really <laughs> thick prison bars. Um, but for me, I'd go there and I'd spend the first half watching the game. But then at half time, uh, I'd had a prearranged place um, by the bars where I'd meet my father and uh, some of his friends. And I'd put my arm through and, and they would pull me through the bars, <laughs> uh, which was fine when I first started going to the game. I was, you know, five or six years of age. But over the couple of years... I was getting bigger and bigger. Um, now, you know, these people were still drinking, so they were they were not going to stop pulling. Until eventually, I actually got my head stuck in the bars. Oh, no. Uh, and I remember it was really painful. Um, but it didn't stop them from pulling. You can imagine if it had three or four pints, stem days, to say, we're going back to health and safety. It wasn't a case of, let's consider his ears. It was a case of, let's pull harder. Mm. Oh, uh, no. And that was the last time I actually went into the boys' pen. Um, and then I was lucky enough to get into the cop. Um, and also, to, to me, the cop was a, an amazing adventure. I didn't see a goal for two years. Because you were too uh, short. I was too short, yeah. yeah. I mean, my dad would put, him, put me on his shoulders. Um, but he couldn't do that for, for you know, the first and second half. Uh, and quite often, I would then jump down. And it was just... It was like a fairground, you know, every time. You can remember, Dave, how, how the cop would move. Uh, every time, you know, it would be a goal or a near miss or a corner. You could actually be pushed 30, 40, 50 metres. Wow. Yeah, and then, and then back up. So it was massive, yeah. It was like, like a sea, wasn't it? Uh, I, I started in the boys' pen. Uh, oh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the popular route into the cop was climbing over the rail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. used to be a yeah. policeman, they'd be uh, on the other side, mm -hmm. and then occasionally the policeman kind of disappear. I was never brave enough actually to climb up. I that was a bit of a. I saw it out. So, uh, <laughs> so most of the games, uh, three quarters, that what we used to call three quarters time. Um, Gates would open oh, around the yeah, ground, so you could go. Yeah. You could leave the boys' pen and find your way into the ground somewhere else, be it the cop or yeah. the paddock or, or these things. Obviously, times have changed dramatically. Mm. Getting in and out of the game now is, is, is a military exercise. I'm mm. just wondering, was there any boys left in the boys' pen at, at oh. in second half? <laughs> oh yeah, the, 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 well, the, the, maybe towards the end, as those who, who you know you, that was your, your introduction to mm. into main sort of. Uh, areas so uh certainly uh for those there were plenty who were brave enough to climb over the railings mm -hmm. at the top i say i i never i never ventured but um it was a, it was a it was a great experience strangely i've spoken to a couple of lads down the years who said how dangerous it was and i never yeah. felt sort of i, I, I was in there yeah. early yeah. and i was always quite at the, the, the front um but people used to talk about how you know how tough it was in there. It was kind of a bit of a you know if you were from a certain area mm. of town, you know you would be picked on by by others. And I never I never experienced that either. But um, Dave Kirby, the the, the the playwright, I mean he he, uh, he waxes lyrical about the 
the voice pen and, and tell some good tales. It's uh, it was a great experience, wasn't it? It's a great, mm -hmm. uh, it's a great party growing up and and getting into the Liverpool. Um, you know, little family, let's say. Uh, you know, you, you're, uh, those memories are, are unbelievable and they're flashing in front of my eyes as we speak. It's one of the, uh, it's a story I try and explain to um, a modern parent um, or even, uh, you know, someone who's 10, 11, the concept of the boys' pen, you look at you in horror. Mm. Went, what, you were dropped off there with all these people? Mm. And it was, was very much, it would look from the outside like a, a prison cage, yeah. yeah like a cage i mean literally you know people had their own little groups and gangs i never seen it i can't remember seeing any 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 trouble in there um, um but you know it, it was like if you can imagine a prison yard where you did have these collective groups well wow. uh, some were bigger than the others you could also spot uh, and i was one of these people myself and i know david was when it was your first day there because you, you tend to st stand alone mm -hmm. and just, you were, you know, just frightened little six, seven. And I don't want to say frightened as you were worried because you never felt that you, you, you'd, you'd get any harm. But it was, it was an introduction to coming to the game in, in a, a safe environment. It must have been because I can't remember. Yeah, your uh, dad would drop you off. He'd go around to where he, my, my dad was in the Kemen Road stand. But uh, feature the, the boys, Ben, I remember and just, comes to me now you come through the, the the turnstiles and they had these big steps and you you could run up them quite sort of you know uh very quickly because they were very wide steps uh to get up and to see the outfit you know just mm -hmm. to see the pitch because you came in and then you see the pitch and and that was the you know that yeah. was the buzz you got of racing into the place but uh, in those days i mean you got to the game two or three hours before the game you yeah. know it wasn't like it wasn't like last minute 15 minutes before 10 minutes before the game Hanging out in Hotel for, Tia for, for hours yeah, first. Yeah, you, you were there hours in advance <laughs> and, uh, and seeing the atmosphere build up and the cop, uh, you know, the ground gradually fill up. It was uh, magical days. And also remember the cop, them days. Uh, what, what what numbers would you have in the cop? 25, 27,000. Yeah, it was all standing. It's a lot of people. Yeah, it was that. a lot of people them days. I mean, I'm not too sure. I mean, they still stand in the cop now to the credit. Um, it's very but raised. now it's only twelve and a half thousand. Is it twelve and a half yeah. now? Is it? Yeah. So you can imagine the way the cop is now, um, but you can imagine it with you know twenty five, thirty thousand, mm -hmm. everyone standing up, mm -hmm. and they weren't the official figures because it wasn't that difficult to get into the stadium then days. No, no, um, no. Some of the rules were broken. Yeah. Well, quite often. Yeah. I mean, as you, I mean, I, I just, I forgot about the gate. The, all the mm -hmm. gates opened twenty minutes before the end, yeah. and when I say opened, not controlled open. They basically just, just opened, opened all the, the gates. gates. So another <laughs> couple of thousand people would, would then I, would then come into venture in, would yeah. venture in. So yeah. I love days. when you talk happy days. I love when you talk about the boys but you both are just smiling big grins. If you're only listening mm. to this, they are they're they're <laughs> sitting here with big mm. smiles. You can see this on YouTube as well as well, by the way. But if you're only listening, they are. And that's not only because the best pictures are in, in the radio. Um when you were growing up Watching the game from the boys pen, um, who was your first big hero playing for Liverpool? Um, probably Kevin Keegan initially. Um, I mean, Kevin Keegan was a, a, a different level of, of footballer. Um, I remember Phil Thompson because he, he, he didn't live too far from us. Uh, and when he won the Champions, uh, the European Cup, um, 
he took it to the Falcon pub. He's, I mean, this is how the community has changed. Did I you mean, go? Yeah, of course I did. Yeah, <gasps> so you yeah. were there? Yeah, of course. Oh, I've heard so many times so, the story about the Falcon pub and you were yeah, actually Yeah, I mean, there. I lived, it was just really just around the corner. I've seen the pictures there, yeah. Aww, it's, have you got pictures uh, yeah. from it as well? Uh, well, the sad thing about photographs, yeah, I, I probably thing. have, uh, and mm. I know Dave was talking about going through his old photographs. I'm kind of hoping one day, I know I've got a couple of photographs of uh, Ellen Hughes and Ray Clements, uh, hopefully I'll find them one day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the the uh, the European Cup was brought to the Falcon. Um, well, the whole world press was waiting for it. I love that. Wondered where it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was hiding away in Kirby. But it didn't seem a massive big. I mean, it was a big thing. Yeah. But because football was so connected to the community. Yeah. yeah. It it seemed like a natural thing. I mean, you know, it I suppose wasn't. we've seen years in the past where you think to yourself, well, it might have just disappeared, you know. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. it was still, it was, a, it was a kind of a, I don't know, a, it, it, it's sort of a, I can't describe the um, the time that it existed. It was, a, it was, mm. it was quite a natural uh, thing. Okay, the cup was here, but I mean, no one thought of steal, you know, stealing it. Although. You know, I mean, things have disappeared down the years, but the, the yeah. European Cup that night spent the night in in Kirby. And then it on was, the bedside table. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It was yeah. literally bouncing around. It wasn't, you know, <laughs> speaking as a close protection officer now, we don't always look after people sometimes as assets. Um, nowadays, you would have probably two close protection officers looking after mm. the European Cup. Yeah. This, this, I, I mean, the memories I have in the, in in the Falcon was this thing was just getting bounced around. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally. Yeah, yeah Tom, um, Tom didn't see it appear to have sort of been the bodyguard for the night. No, he's having a pint at the bar. And <laughs> the, the thing yeah. was probably in some it was. Corner. It was, just, it was bouncing around. He yeah. let his ba- shiny baby uh, be shared for the night. His his excuse for the listeners um, is though that when you guys won the the League Cup um, mm. a few weeks earlier, uh, the League Cup trophy disappeared and then they the, the cleaners of the bus company found it at the back seat oh, well, <laughs> so then so then uh, phil being the captain at the time got told off saying phil hmm. next time we win a trophy you look after the trophy so he literally <laughs> looked after the trophy so he was the bodyguard hmm. but a bodyguard who would be a bit flexible in terms <laughs> of the surroundings one of the things about the european cup was and and i said this a couple of times to people down the years didn't have that many pictures taken with the european cup because it was so heavy People didn't tend to hang on to the European Cup that way. Mm. You'd lift it and think, have a quick moment, picture taken, pass it on, because <laughs> the thing weighs, you know, it weighed a ton, uh, particularly at the end of a match uh, as well. So um, it, it, it's, it's, it's how blasé we were about the, about, about the European Cup in those days. The prize we wanted most, but blasé about the actual, you know, trophy itself. You know, sometimes... Um, Sometimes it annoys me when people talk about um, hate games in football. You know, mm. this is this is a war. This is this is you know this is the, the ultimate hate game. Or um, and and especially when we play Manchester United, um, you being in so many war zones. What do you mm. think about people trying to sort of build up to these conflicts in football as if it's like a proper war? Yeah, it's, it's something that I really detest, to be honest. I mean, rivalry's amazing. You have yeah. to have rivalry. Even um, through my military days, into unit, you always had this rivalry, into company, into platoon. is a good thing to have because from a competitive side, it, it pushes you on. When, it's, when the rivalry goes into hate, it becomes, you know, 
really, really bad. Um, I'm not too sure I remember two years ago when uh, Old Trafford had the uh, security incident where people broke in, smashed. Mm. I was actually got a phone call from a media group who they sometimes tasked me to work for different uh, media channels. And he asked me if I was anywhere around the area. And I said, yeah. And he said, could you pop down to Old Trafford? Because um, we've got a camera crew down there and there's, it's just kicking off. There's a lot of protest. Um, and one thing that I wouldn't normally do uh, anything with, with, with Sky or BBC in, in Old Trafford because obviously I have a Scouse accent. Um, but I foolishly said, yeah, I'm not too far away. So I parked up not too far away from the stadium. Uh, and then I was walking towards the stadium and it was very much like going into, you know, uh, like a, a large scale protest, quite a violent one. It was bottles thrown and stuff, which is really disappointing. But I, I, what I do remember is every other song was like an anti-Scouse song. I oh, mean, no. I literally, I understand you were protesting because, of, you know, financial issues and stuff, being unhappy with uh, development of the team. But it, it literally was every other song was so I'm I'm going there now trying to catch up uh, to the uh, the presenter from Sky, and my phone goes and I'm I'm surrounded by about four hundred very sort of uh, angry Mancunians, and I was just about to answer my phone and thought it's probably not a good idea to answer my phone with a Scouse accent in the middle because it was so I, I was shocked by the level of violence mm. and I don't think football you know let's not we're not talking about rivalry here. Because it's 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 you should have rivalry against football. Yeah. When that crosses over to to this level of hate, it's not a nice thing. It's not good for the sport. It's not good for supporters, and it shouldn't be promoted in any way at all. There's no there's no justification for you know <coughs> hostile support um, and hostile words against another football team. Because what you've seen out there in the world of like real horrible conflicts, and you've probably seen some of the worst sides of human. Humans, really, sometimes. Mm. Um, for me, and I'm just talking for me now, I'm thinking football is such a such an escape from all mm. your everyday life, your worries, your stress. It's like a, I sometimes joke and say it's, it's like my mental yoga. <laughs> so I go there yeah. and I pause the world and, you know, whatever I'm stressing about or worrying about or if I haven't been able to pay my bills or whatever it is, mm. I go into to Anfield and, and it's it's my free time. So it's, I, th- I, just, I just don't get why you would then take that wonderful opportunity of giving yourself a really positive boost and, and some peace. Not peace in, in that sense of, of course, I'm passionate and, and, and I get you worked up and stuff. But it's, it's that break from all the real horrible things that can happen mm. in, in someone's lives. Do you guys agree? Obviously... You know, it's very tribal, uh, yeah. and as Dave says, uh, about having that sort of competitive edge, which is which is good, drags you on. But I mean, we've seen different eras where whereby that that tribal has has you know gone to different degrees, and uh, you know, having come through the seventies and and stuff, and seen all the um, the hooliganism that used to, that attached itself to football in those days, it was brutal and and hated mm. and. Um, we we kind of moved on. The tribalness still exists, but I think it's glad to see glad to see that the, the violence is is no longer there. I mean, walking around the ground uh, in recent weeks, just you know, we've had big supports from Arsenal, Newcastle, and and, and the like. Um, and you can you know, there's no no fear of or uh, 
or bad, you know, real sort of um, uh, anger around, and and you're able to sort of walk past each other. Whereas years ago, I mean, mm. the segregation and 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 separating fans and one thing but it was it was very uh, it was a big a big thing. So um, the hatred still goes on in a way. Thankfully, people don't attach the violence as, mm. as much violence to it. I think which is you know. You can take that sort of maybe mm. I don't know if, as long as it's only words and it's not too um, uh, hard edged. You know, you know we've we've had those we've we've you know all clubs have experienced certain tragedies and, and things like that. And nobody really wants those to be dragged up. That's when it sort mm. of at this day and age, that's where it goes o- oversteps the. Uh, I think a lot of it now thing. is directed towards owners. Mm. Mm. Um, right. You know, certainly with, when I went down to Old Trafford with Sky, the, it was very directed towards the owners mm. of the stadium. Um, and also fans' perceptions changed. Um, I, I spoke to some amazing Man United supporters who are, are, are equal to the passion. I mean, that, that's what mm. you find. There's no difference. The more passionate a fan is, the more you actually probably have in connection with that, that individual. Um, but I remember um, sh- shortly after the main protest had finished, I was speaking to a couple of the uh, United supporters and I said, what, what, what is it? I know you're, you're anti-glazier at the moment. What is it you're after? And he went, well, you know, investment in the team. But at that st- stage, Man United had, had actually, um, I think they were third in Europe for how much mm. it's invested in players. Um, so sometimes what drives this hatred is more a, a fan's perception of where they should be you know there's no just because you've got a lot of money it won't, won't always guarantee your success no, no. I mean the question about Man City is you know is, is a big question that's still ongoing um, you used to talk about Big Four what how many big is it a big six now? David, everyone goes through some traumas in life, uh, some more than others. And obviously you've gone into some pretty traumatic situations over decades. What would be your best advice for people to try to handle their traumas? Um, yeah, it's definitely a, a very sort of troubling stage uh, of uh, where the world is at the moment. Advice, I'd say communicate to people. Um, one of the things that I've certainly discovered is that uh, having the ability to talk to people uh, is is crucial uh, to deal with, you know, anxiety or stress or even if you've got PTSD. Um, it, it is strange to say that a lot of the places that I go to, some of the most amazing people who are the people who've been through so much, um, there's a they seem to be a bit more sincere about how they talk about things a little bit more open. And it's that openness that, that can actually give you a lot of source of, uh, you know, a lot of relief in dealing with anxiety or stress. So communication, basically. Talk, talk, talk. Um, well, it's not, I don't think it's just a case of talk, talk, talk. It's, it's about, um, it, it, it's amazing when you, you meet someone and you start talking to them, you can get some sort of connection with that person. Um, I think it feels good um, if someone has a connection or can relate to certain things that you've experienced. That can go a long way in, 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 in re- removing anxiety or stress or PTSD. Um, don't think that one, there's always one solution for everyone because there's not. Uh, I, I'm lucky enough now to work with some amazing um, people who, who teach resilience on trauma. Um, and, you know, when I, I sit in their presentations, I'm, I'm amazed by, you know, 
how they can assess a certain thing. But it always goes down to the most fundamental parts of being a human being. It's not high tech. It doesn't rely on technology. It's about communicating, being honest with your feelings, not being judgmental about some about um, you know what people have gone through or even the actions that they've done. As an ex-soldier, you know we often uh, went into environments where we were told what to do. Um, you know, so not being judgmental about how people have behaved or what they've done in the past, but trying to understand the situation that they were in. Uh, and I think that's probably uh, the, the best advice that, that I could give. So many men, though, do not want to talk when things are difficult. Do you think that's getting any better or are we still there where men are just silently suffering? Um, I, was, I was certainly one of them people, without a doubt, um, when you talk about so many men. Um, it, it's not the man's fault. It, it was more of a cultural fault. Um, you know, military days, we were not just not allowed to talk about anything that was stressful. It was seen as a sign of weakness. Uh, I've got some friends who, are, you know, in the police, and they said exactly the same thing. They're quite senior now. Um, you know, if you ever were involved in a stressful situation, and then you dare to say it affected you, it was always considered as a negative, not a positive. Uh, and so what has changed now is having the ability to uh, to say, you know, that did affect me. Um, and, you know, by talking about it, I think it will go, uh, you know, it will help me deal, process what happened. And then we all want to move on and we all want to live a happy life because uh, that's the aim of really, that's a meaning of life more than anything else. Do you sleep at night with everything you've seen and done? Um, yeah, I do actually, yeah. Um, I think I'm still very much... Um, part of an industry that I joined at 16, 16 years and nine months old, which is the military, you know, the, going into um, challenging environments. I never left that because when, when I eventually left the military, I went into diplomatic protection. I was head of the embassy in, um, in Baghdad in Iraq. Uh, I was head of the embassy in Libya. Um, and then from there, I went into, uh, you know, uh, kidnapping ransom. So I've still always been part of this environment and I think you only get real problems when you completely disconnect and maybe see with professional footballers um, Gascoigne probably comes to mind um, you, you know you're very much a, a main part of something and then all of a sudden you're not age doesn't help you know we all get old um, your body starts failing a little bit and you're it's quite easy to sort of look at negatives and it's having the ability to look at positives um, more than anything else. My final question to you, David Smallwood. Um, what does Liverpool Football Club mean to you? It, it, it means everything to me. Um, you know, it's memories from my father taking me the very first time um, to the cop and put me on his, on his shoulders. Um, I'm lucky enough to support a team that's been quite successful over the years. Of course, we've had, you know, uh, bad times. But I always think that you, you have to experience rain to appreciate the sun. And, and Liverpool gives us so much, so, so many sunny days. And, it, and it, it, it may not be the most important thing, because it's not. I mean, it's certainly not the most important thing. But sometimes, you know what, it just feels like it is. And that's lovely. When the world can just be Liverpool Football Club and nothing else. When you get a good result, um, you know, all your troubles seem to sort of disappear. For, not, not forever, and, you know, we shouldn't expect that to happen. 
but for, for that little amount of time, then, you know, everything seems to be right. Dearest David uh, Smallwood and dear David Fairclough, thank you so much for your time today and your lovely stories. And I have to say all the best with the year to come, uh, David, because, you know, you have a lot of challenges and, and, and big tasks ahead of you in, in a very troubled world. So thank you for all the safety you create uh, around you uh, in the world. And I have to say thank you to everyone listening to this. My name is Ragnil Lund-Ansnes and you've been listening.